0: This is Crossroads, a Get Religion
1: podcast. A religion news service headline, Christian Reformed Church votes to codify homosexual sex as sin in its declaration of faith. A little bit of the lead, the Christian Reformed Church, a small evangelical denomination of the U.S. and Canada's churches, voted Wednesday at its annual synod to codify its opposition to homosexual sex by elevating it to the status of confession or declaration of faith. Now, I haven't read much about this in the mainstream media. How big of a story is it? There's no doubt, though, the Christian Reformed Church's connection to Calvin University, or Calvin College, as it used to be known, is a big news connection. Greetings and welcome to Crossroads with Terry Mattingly. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for tuning us in. Terry Mattingly is senior fellow at the Overby Center for Southern Journalism and Politics at the University of Mississippi. He's author of the weekly On Religion column for the Universal Syndicate and the book Pop Goes Religion, and he's founder and editor of Get Religion. Terry, welcome back.
0: Glad to be here.
1: Well, let's talk about the connection of this church and it's called its flagship university, Calvin College. What does the future of Calvin College look like after this decision of the Christian Reformed Church? Well, I think it's safe to say
0: that some of the trends that have been taking place in recent years will continue. The CRC, I believe, is in kind of in demographic decline, like a lot of churches in the Midwest. So Calvin has faced some declining enrollment in recent years. And interestingly enough, some other more conservative schools have not. An article at the uh, editorial page section of World Magazine noted that Hillsdale College, a school that has kind of an on-again, off-again relationship with the Reformed worldview and explicit Christian faith in general, Hillsdale is more of a conservative school than it is a conservative Christian school, if you look at its history. But Hillsdale is growing and, in fact, is getting more select. I think you could ask if anyone has done any polling, anyone involved in the voting at this issue for the CRC, And anyone involved in the trustees of Calvin University, I wonder if anyone has poll data on how many parents have sent their children to Hillsdale or Dort in recent years, even if they are alums of Calvin. During a period of time where Calvin's leadership role in being LGBTQ friendly among Christian college has risen and risen and risen as a profile of kind of this As the tensions grew with the CRC, Calvin became more open in dancing on that high wire between outright rejection of its denomination's teachings and a kind of functional rejection. But where we are now, if you look at the numbers involved in this, the vote in the denomination was 123 to 53. It's a pretty strong margin And it's also interesting, though, to note that that kind of two-thirds, one-third roughly balance is almost identical to what you see in the Calvin faculty, where you have one-third of the faculty who've signed a letter opposing their denomination's stand on this issue. But before we get in further into that discussion, Todd, let's look at that headline again that you read out loud for the listeners, Christian Reformed Church Codifies Homosexual Sex as sin and its declaration of faith. Do you think that headline is an accurate description of what the CRC did?"
1: Well, I hadn't thought about that before. Hmm.
0: That's part of what they did. What was the overarching theological statement from the CRC? It codified that sex outside of marriage, as defined by censures of Christianity, is sin. It didn't just say that homosexual sex is sin. It said that all sex outside of marriage is sin, and it defined marriage using roughly 2,000 years of Christian tradition as its guide. It's also interesting that in the past, the CRC has, like almost every single Christian denomination that I know of, and certainly this has been true in Christian higher education, They've made a distinction between students who, they would say, struggle or feel that they struggle with same-sex orientation or feel they are same-sex oriented. They make a distinction between people who proclaim or wrestle with that orientation and those that go on to sexual activity based on that orientation. They make a distinction between action and belief or sense of identity. And you'll see this running throughout almost all of the mainline Protestant debates about this topic, and you certainly see it in Catholic writings, especially you see it among Catholics who proclaim themselves to be LGBTQ to one issue, or I should say they proclaim themselves to be gay or lesbian. I don't know that this applies in trans situations, But you have Catholics who proclaim themselves to be gay or lesbian, but who defend the church's teachings and say they intend to live by them, meaning they intend to live their life in celibacy. You see that distinction between orientation and behavior is actually quite normative, and in the religion news service coverage of this, it makes it sound like that's an unusual development and represented some liberalism in some way in the past among CRC, the CRC denomination. It seems to me that the CRC has not changed at all in its approach to this issue, and it's had to react to the ongoing development of kind of a counter doctrinal position stated or at least all but openly advocated at its flagship school, A campus that also includes its seminary. And so the fact that the seminary is there as well is something that people need to understand. So what's the future of Calvin? I think we can expect some decline, but I would say that some of the more conservative members of the CRC would say there's a chance that enrollment might go up because people who have hesitated to send their children there in the past may do so now. At the same time, there certainly would be uh, more doctrinally liberal parents among the CRC who would now not send their children to Calvin. Now, that the denomination has taken this very clear point. At the same time, probably the most famous faculty member at Calvin, at least with the mainstream press, Kirsten Dumes, the author of Jesus and John Wayne, she wrote an essay and posted it online where she opened that she's been asked many times in the last couple of years whether she was going to lose her job because of the book Jesus and John Wayne, and she's been saying she doesn't think so, but now she says openly, we'll just have to wait and see. Later in that piece, she, she asks a really good question that in some ways is related to your question, and she says the question is, why have LGBTQ students chosen to attend Calvin, and there's a very frank paragraph that I think our listeners need to hear. Let me read this for you. Granted, for some it's because it's the only college their parents will pay for, but for many it's because they are drawn to the mission to think deeply, act justly, and live wholeheartedly as Christ agents of renewal in the world. Big word there is renewal. They want a Christian education. Some are there for the distinctively reformed Christian education. I've known students whose parents not only kick them out of their homes when they come out, but they also cut off tuition payments. These students are so committed to the reformed Christian education that they find ways to stay, I assume that stay at Calvin, sometimes going deep into personal debt to do so. Now there's a lot in that paragraph to unpack. But you can see some of the parameters of the debate at Calvin within that remarkable paragraph.
1: One of the things I found missing in the coverage that I was able to read on this story was just a simple numbers question that any reporter could probably ask and get at least a guesstimate answer from someone at, at Calvin, and that is how many of its academic faculty are reformed, in particular, three parts, Christian reformed, how many of them are reformed in any sense, and how many of them are even Christian? That seems to be well, a really big question to ask in light of one-third of the faculty signing this letter.
0: Well, see, there's a strong doctrinal statement that the faculty have to sign. We discussed that a couple of months ago in a different podcast about the Calvin faculty member who performed a same-sex marriage, and the, reporting in the student newspaper kind of um, outed a lot of this debate on campus. They have to sign, and I know from many visits to the Calvin campus, that it's a big deal that they require faculty to attend a Reformed congregation. Now, they stress that Reformed can be defined broadly. On the conservative side, that would certainly include the PCA. The Presbyterian Church in America. I imagine there would be debates on whether you could become a member of a Presbyterian Church USA, the liberal mainland Protestant group, and have that still apply. Certainly, there are those who would choose to argue they could attend a Reform Church in America congregation, although that may have changed with the divisions now starting in that denomination over issues of biblical authority, sexual morality and LGBTQ issues to be specific. So I've also heard Calvin faculty members say that this is interpreted as being you have to be a member of a Reformed congregation. I've heard some say that they are a member of a CRC church, but they actually attend a more liberal Protestant denomination, Episcopal, ELCA Lutheran, or some other church, That is more in fitting with their theological perspective. Faculty at Christian colleges are often quite skilled at interpreting the language of doctrinal statements within their own views of that theological tradition. And I think that one of the big takeaways from this controversy, when you look at the future, is when when you talk about the role that Calvin plays as one of the leading and most influential Christian colleges in America, and I say that with no hesitation that that is true. If, like me, you've worked within the Council for Christian Colleges and Universities, you know that the talk of what's called the Calvin Mafia, which is a kind of very overtly reformed theological squad of excellent faculty members that have their influence far outweighs their numbers within the broader CCCU. And you could also note that the current president of the CCCU is a former vice president for student life at Calvin, thus someone who wrestled with these issues on their campus throughout her tenure there. So I think one of the things that we need to be asked here is what's the theological equation being used by the reformers in this case? And I, I think it's simply, when you listen to what Kristen DeMez says and others would say, I think they're saying that the intellectual excellence of the Christian Reformed worldview and the standards of that excellence is now allowing modern Reformers to say that they can reform the mistakes made by the Reformed. Did that make any sense? It's kind of a complicated statement. They hold. The intellectual standards of their theological tradition in their eyes, and that excellence of the Reformed thought, and especially its superiority to stupid Christians like evangelicals and fundamentalists and normal Baptists and whatever, their defense of the Reformed worldview is now allowing them to reform the theology of their Reformed elders and previous generations. They're reforming the reform. And if that sounds familiar, that's the exact language that's being discussed now among many liberal Catholics in terms of the progression of doctrine in their own faith. It certainly is the language that would have been used by the left side of the United Methodist spectrum. That would be what would be said in the ELCA. That would be said in the Episcopal Church, etc. So, I keep that in mind as we continue to talk about what's happening at Calvin.
1: So, Terry, why didn't I read much about this vote by the Christian Reformed Church on homosexual sin in the mainstream media?
0: Well, cynics would say you didn't read about it because it went the wrong way. And RNS, Religion News Service, which, with some notable exceptions among the staff, tends to view the world through the lens of liberal mainline Protestant, liberal Catholicism, liberal Judaism, etc., a reform-the-reform kind of perspective is normative there, especially in their commentary sections, but frankly in a lot of their news copy. I think it's important that in this story, unless I miss something, I don't think there were any defenders of the policy quoted out of the student body, the faculty, or from trustees of the school, perhaps, another logical place to go for commentary. In other words, there were voice after voice after voice featured in the story represented the perspective of those who are angry or weeping about this CRC doctrinal reaffirmation of its teaching. So, I mean, you, you don't expect RNS and s to avoid this topic because they're going to cover it no matter what, because that's what they do. They cover the world more broadly, the world of religion more broadly, than most elite newsrooms. But at the same time, I think this is a very Midwestern religious tradition. The New York Times may or may not care about the Midwest all that much when the Iowa primaries are not on the horizon. And I think you'd also have to say that it's just a small denomination, and it doesn't have a sexy name. In other words, it doesn't have the word Lutheran in the title or Methodist in the title or Episcopalians are in and of themselves a very important thing because they're very important in New York City and so much of America's journalism worldview is formed in newsrooms in New York City. So I think at this point you should not expect any coverage until perhaps you see a maybe next fall When students return to the campus, I could totally see the New York Times magazine or their feature staff sending a reporter to Grand Rapids to kind of semi-embed themselves on the campus and look for signs, quite frankly, signs of suffering among students and faculty.
1: Now, what happens now? You had mentioned the one author of the Jesus and John Wayne book. Right. What happens to liberal faculty members at Calvin.
0: She said openly that lots of people on campus, and I guess we could assume that's up to a third, based on people who signed the statement opposing the CRC efforts to reaffirm this this teaching. I think she said they're polishing up their resumes and getting ready to leave. I would stress, based on, frankly, contacts I have in Christian higher education, that if a faculty position opens at Calvin, a school with a reputation of being one of the top schools in the country, you are going to have floods of resumes come in from excellent scholars and people with graduate degrees from Ivy League and Oxford and Cambridge and all over the place, and probably some CRC faculty who have been at state universities and feeling more and more imperiled in their jobs or they've been at other Christian colleges and universities that have kind of gone liberal and they're feeling like their jobs are imperiled, they're going to flood Calvin with resumes. So I think that the bigger question here is once Calvin begins to get a feeling for how many faculty leave, and when they get a feeling for what an actual future looks like, include in terms of parents sending their children to Calvin. I think you may see Calvin take this as an opportunity to downsize a bit in terms of its faculty. Also looking at basic demographics in their region and in the United States in general. I mean, when I was a faculty member with the the Washington Journalism Center for the CCCU in Washington, we constantly were hearing demographic information about what would happen after the surge of enrollments with the millennials and then we moved into smaller and more secular youth groups, clusters of potential students after that. I would predict Calvin in two to three years the trustees are going to take a sobering look at their own economics and wonder how many faculty they need to hire, what they can expect, as realistic enrollment based on patterns at another CRC school called Dort College. It may be a university now, but I've always known it as Dort College, and that's what comes out of my mouth when I think of Dort. And then they may look at Hillsdale. They may look at Hillsdale as an example of a school that, for example, refuses government loans because they don't want any hint that the U.S. government might control their future, and they have enough – loyal donors and parents that they survive, apparently quite easily, raising their own money without help from the government. And that's something I know a lot of Christian college leaders are highly interested in. What are the alternative ways of doing Christian higher education should the government ever cut off the student loans? So people will be watching Calvin, whether that will lead to additional coverage, I, I can't predict that, but frankly, I think journalists should be paying attention to what happens at Calvin in the next two to three
1: years. With well, only a minute here, my own church body, the Lutheran Church of Missouri Synod, operates a number of universities, and some of them, not all of them, of course, but some of them are struggling the same way Calvin is. They, right. they have, either by design or by simple lack of effort, allowed the LGBTQ agenda to take root there, and it's definitely against the stated doctrinal position of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, and some are moving the other direction. They're saying now we want to become more Lutheran and more aligned with the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod's doctrinal Mm -hmm. positions when we haven't in the past. What is the lesson here from Calvin College for those situations?
0: Well, it's the same struggle, isn't it? It's basically the same dynamics. A lot of schools, when enrollment begins to decline, they face the issue of what can we do to get more students? What can we do to retain students, and kind of what changes do we need to make? It is sobering to think that a denomination needs to close schools, that its future cannot sustain the current numbers, especially if that future is doctrinally faithful. Yet at the same time, you could make the case that uh, blurring your doctrines is going to run away some of the very people that you're most trying to attract to your campus as students, parents, donors, faculty, trustees, etc. There's a real question here. Is it good for business to be clear about your doctrines or is it bad for business? And I mean the, the bottom line. Is it bad for business to blur your doctrinal lines? That's the debate you're going to hear more and more at Christian colleges as they face some hard dollars and cents and doctrinal questions in the next three to five years.
1: Terry Mattingly is senior fellow at the Overby Center for Southern Journalism and Politics at the University of Mississippi. He's author of the weekly On Religion column for the Universal Syndicate and the book Pop Goes Religion, and he's founder and editor of Get Religion. Terry, thank you very much. Glad to be here. I'm Todd Wilkin. I'll talk with you next week. Thanks for listening to Crossroads with Terry Mattingly. Crossroads is a production of Get Religion, part of the First Amendment projects at the Overby Center at the University
0: of Mississippi. If you appreciate this podcast, please make a secure online tax-deductible donation at getreligion.org.